Good morning. I'm Amy Bridges, and today's scripture is from Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ms. Amy. Yeah, you bet. How's everybody doing? We good? Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Blake Rogers. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the church. I've, n- I've not been able to meet you yet. Would love to uh, after the service. I know Jason mentioned this earlier, but we really believe in pastoral access and knowing one another, being community together. And so come find us. Uh, we'll have many of our elders over here uh, afterwards, and I would love to meet you. Um, today we're finishing our second sermon, and the final sermon actually, in our catechism series. Uh, one of the burdens that we have as a church is to see, as this passage just reminded us of, the generations that they would continue to walk in the Lord, that they would continue to know him. They wouldn't forget God. And you guys do such a great job. I see so many of the green t-shirts. You know, when somebody's wearing a green t-shirt in here, it's not a fashion statement, even though they are cool. It's saying, hey, I just served in kids in the previous hour. And and this is a church that is totally committed uh, to raising up my kids. I have three kids, and God has made me the father of three children. And so this is something that is near and dear to my heart. It, it, It is central, in fact, to my responsibilities God-given responsibilities in this world. And so I am pumped that we get to preach on this uh, one more uh, Sunday. And uh, as Jason mentioned, there's a parent brunch going on. There's a whole ministry uh, that we build around raising up children. And so you guys are an integral part of that. So thanks for linking arms with us so far. You know, one of the interesting things about uh, planting a church in a city is you got to figure out where. Where are you going to plant a church? You know, and there's a lot of factors that kind of go into that. This plate, this area is more expensive than this area. Uh, more members are driving. You know, what are the drive time analyses that Bradley puts together for us to make sure that we're not kind of getting out of bounds, uh, so on and so forth. And Dee's and I, I think we put a thousand miles on our vehicles at least, just kind of popping around from place to place to place to figure out where is the long-term home for our church family. And it was a fun discovery. It was a fun journey. And, and in God's grace, he put us here to worship and he provided a building just two doors down, which is amazing. Well, one of the reasons that we were committed to being central to the city as best we could is because of the story of Atlanta. In the research that we did leading up to that capital campaign and finding out where we needed to be, we discovered that in 1965, in 1965, that's not that long ago, there were 165 churches that served the population of Atlanta. In 1965, 165 churches that served the 950,000 person population of Atlanta. Today, there are, we estimate, around 10 Baptist churches in the perimeter that have 100 or more people gathering to worship the Lord that they were created to worship on a weekly basis. This is dismal. This is not good. This is bad. How did the gospel have such a foothold in a city through churches that now have gone away? Well, this is not just an Atlanta problem, right? If you go to Europe or if you've been to Europe or if you travel to any kind of secularizing culture, one of the things that you will find is that the church buildings are often being converted for other uses. 
That's happening here in Atlanta as well. But if you go to Europe, you'll see uh, many churches are bars or many churches are banks or other kind of public halls and whatnot. They're not, their primary purpose anymore is not the worship of the one true and living God and inviting people into this story. And so we as, a, as, as church leaders and you as our church family, we said, you know what? We are going to plant ourselves here so that we can be a part of a generational movement one generation to the next, that God would be known through this church and in this city. This is something that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Um, in Judges chapter 2 and verse 10, we see this. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This is not just an Atlanta problem. What we're talking about here, this generational discipleship idea is a human problem. It's always been a problem. You recall the judges, the cycle of the judges. God would send a judge and lead them well, and then they would fall back into their sin. And you see this over and over and over and over again. And if we as a church are to be found faithful, ring up the generations to know God, we must focus on what we are supposed to do as this passage calls us to uh, today. And so we're going to think about this passage in three different ways. The first thing that we're going to focus on from this passage are the works of God. We're going to talk about what do I think, what do we think, what is the biblical author seeking to say are the works of God that need to be told to the generations lest they forget we're going to look at a generational stewardship that every single person in this room, parent or not, has. A generational stewardship. And then finally, we're going to be reminded of our generational hope, our generational home. And so the works of God. The, the refrain in this passage is this idea of the works of God. What are we to say? We're to say and communicate these works. What are they? Well, in verse four, you see the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might and the wonders that he has done. In verse seven, you see that they should not forget these works. I think it's most helpful to understand these works in two different categories. The first is general revelation. General revelation. What do I mean when I say general revelation? General revelation is the revelation that God has given to all people who have lived in his creation. It's the kind of revelation available to you when you go to the beach on your summer vacation and you wake up early and you go and you watch the sunrise and the sun seems to come out of nowhere, out of the horizon and gives light to all things around you. And all the while that's happening, you realize we're actually on a sphere and we're actually spinning a thousand miles an hour how is this happening? It's incredible. What God has made in this world is a fascinating thing. In fact, it is so fascinating. It is so big that our finite minds cannot totally understand or comprehend it all. God's general revelation is massive and it is good for us. It is one of the things that we should pass down to uh, the generations. You know, we in our generation, we, we, are, we are enamored with modern creators, right? Some of the famous modern creators, guys like Jeff Bezos, right? We think about him all the time. Why? Because our wives buy packages all the time and Amazon shows up all the time. And our house is always, you got to tear down the boxes and whatnot. Jeff Bezos is there and you're like, man, this guy's value must be through the roof. You think Elon Musk, he's kind of like, polarizing figures. What is he doing? He's doing all kind of crazy stuff, moving things forward, trying to go to Mars. He's, he's a creator. He does interesting things. So many of our lives have been changed and altered and shaped by Steve Jobs and, and his creation of the iPhone. And so we, we're enamored with these kinds of people. I read their biographies. Uh, being enamored with a creator is, is what it means to be human to a degree. We, we were created in the image of God. And so whenever we like creators who are good. It's because God, the one that we came from was the creator of all things. But we've got to be a people who communicate the wonderful, the marvelous creation, the magnificent creation of God to our children, that whenever they encounter life, 
through the senses that they have, that they see that these are a gift from a good God. You can't understand yourself in the biblical narrative without first understanding Genesis 1 and 2, and we'll talk more about it here in just a minute. But there's another reality to general revelation that we need to consider this morning. And it's what's found in Romans chapter 2 and verse 19, chapter 1, 19 through 20. The apostle Paul says this about the general revelation of God. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. But there's a caveat here. There's another sentence. So they are without excuse. As good as general revelation is, it can only lead you far enough to know that there is a God who's out there who is holy and good, but that we have no way to access him. General revelation gives you no way to access the one who has created it all. And so we, as a church, as people, as Christians who are committed to the generations to come, we need to communicate the general, but we need to communicate what church history is called specific or special revelation as well. Special revelation, the, the, the revelation that we also need to include here is this revelation that pertains to the particular acts of God on behalf of his covenant people. If you're a Christian in the room, not only have you seen God in creation, but you've seen God in Christ. This is something that is a gift to you. It's a gift to me. I, I, I didn't earn this. God spoke to my dead soul and created life. And so it is true with you. If you know Christ today, you have received special revelation as a covenant person with the one who has made it all. You have access to him. You can understand yourself in light of him truly. And you can have communion and fellowship with him. Some of these works that uh, the psalmist here is committed to communicating to the generations to come have to be things like the Exodus, where the people of Israel, they were literally between the, the wrath of God and the Red Sea and the wrath of man and the Egyptians following them, and God delivered them when they had nowhere else to go. This is what it means to have special revelation. This is David, God delivering David and the nation of Israel from the Philistines and Goliath through great miraculous works. God is the one who provided whenever there didn't seem to be a way. We are a church family uh, that organizes ourselves in such a way that we communicate all of these things and we need to take this into our homes. We need to teach this to our children. But that's not all. Another thing we are responsible to do as parents, as a church family, is to help our children find themselves in this story that God has continued to write and that he will continue to write until Christ returns. You know, one of the, the fundamental things that we know about ourselves from the scriptures in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is this, that we are made in the image of whom? We've made in the, we're made in the image of God. And that means something profound. This is a, this is a big, big deal. This is, this is something that is, when you, when you study it, you'll never understand the fullness of it because God is so great that we can never understand him with our finite minds. But as we align ourselves with what God is saying uh, to us as image bearers, there's something profound that happens. And there's something profound that we need our kids to understand about themselves as image bearers. And since they are image bearers of the one true and living God, and not primarily us as humans, God has a way of parenting and a way of a, a set of priorities for them. Um, a few years ago, uh, I got to go to a coaching clinic at the University of Alabama. And uh, anybody, anybody know about this university? Uh, yeah, we got some fans over there. I got a few text messages afterwards. I don't know what it is with y'all. You, you, can, you can preach a fine sermon and, and not hear anything about the sermon, but if you, if you give a shout out to a university, 
the fans will text you. It's interesting. RTR. I got several of those afterwards. It's like, you know the sermon wasn't about Roll Tide Roll, right? But I like the enthusiasm, and it's great. But, you know, Jason, he introduced Nick Saban last week. He said, hey, you know, um, Nick Saban, got a lot of respect for this guy, but I certainly don't like him. Well, I've got a lot of respect for him, and I kind of like him. I'm not an Alabama fan, uh, but, I, but I respect what he does. And I, I think he's kind of hitting on some general revelation ideas that I think work in a lot of different areas. Well, I went to this coaching clinic, and it was me. And uh, the only other non-high school football coach there was a lady named Holly Rowe, right? She was just taking copious notes the whole time. And she's, she's probably writing a, going to write a biography on, on uh, Nick Saban one day, and she's going and she's getting all of this, this, uh, this information. Well, it, it's amazing. Whenever Nick Saban enters the room of these, these high, school, high school football coaches, it's like, it's like the president is here, right? The president of the United States. It's like, it's this incredible ooh and ah kind of thing. And you're, you're sitting with like 50-year-old men, and you're like, guys, he's a man. He coaches football. Like, why are we like stumbling all over ourselves it's like they're trying to, I don't know, it's just the nervous energy in the room is just so like fascinating to me. But if you go around the campus of University of Alabama and you go to Bryant-Denny Stadium, which of course I did, um, one of the things you see are, are these statues out front. And obviously the University of Alabama, they've been very privileged to win a lot of these things called national championships that we hear of over here in Georgia. And... Um, and we hear of these things, but, but apparently if you're at the University of Alabama and you're coaching, what happens is you get a statue made in your likeness, in your image, okay? And so whenever you go to, into Bryant-Denny Stadium, you pass all of the, the big-time coaches who have won national championships, and then you get to Nick Saban's statue. And that statue, because he's still the coach there, tells you something. It tells you that the conqueror still reigns, Right? It tells you that the conqueror of college football still lives here. He is still here. He's the king of that stadium. He's the king of college football. I know Kevin Ferguson hates this. He's the king. And it is very similar to the imagery for how we understand ourselves as image bearers from the Old Testament. What would happen in the ancient Near East is because there weren't an, or, there, you know, citizenship wasn't as organized as it is today. And uh, there, there were no news outlets. And so what would end up happening is this land over here would have great resource ability. You could plant fertile ground land. The king of this group of people would then go overtake this group of people. But how would this group of people, after the war was over, know who the reigning king was. He would put a statue of himself and everyone would know this is the person you pay taxes to. This is the person who's Lord over this land, so on and so forth. Well, whenever we, we think about that relative to our image bearing-ness, we'll call it, something profound happens. You realize that God put you here to proclaim his rule in his reign. God placed image bearers all throughout the world by telling them to be fruitful and to multiply so that they would communicate the reign and the rule of the one true and living God forever through the generations. And this is the story that we find ourselves in. This past week, our oldest son, Cannon, some of you may know him because you serve in Covenant Kids, he was having a hard time earlier during the baptisms, so I appreciate y'all uh, helping him out. But he started kindergarten this past week, and it was an interesting week in our home, right? Uh, we did all of the, like, new parent going to public, you know, kid going to public school kind of things. My wife packed his lunch. She had his book bag already. She laid his clothes out. We prayed for him the night before. We did, like, all of these fun things, and then we took him to school. But before we took him to school... We did something else. We did what modern parents do. We took a picture of him so that we may post this on social media so that everyone out there could see, okay, we've got a kindergartner now in the Rogers home. And, and it was awesome. He did a great job uh, taking pictures. We were, we were sad. We were happy. My wife was crying a lot. And, and I think I'll cry more whenever like my girls go off. But like for him, he was pumped, ready. I was like, you go get him. 
kind of an idea. And uh, so anyways, we post this on social media. And then what happens is when you post this on social media, a lot of the older ladies in your life that were around when you were a kindergartner from back home who have now made their way onto Facebook and social media, they begin to comment and say, oh my goodness, he's a little Blake. He, he looks just like Blake did. And, and if you go and you were to go to my house and pull a picture of me whenever I was his age and you hold it up next to him, you're going to be like, the camera quality back then was terrible, but these two look a lot alike. And there's a lot of like pride in my heart for that. There's something about having an image bearer who looks like you that, that makes you proud. It just makes you proud. And we as parents, we as church who have these image bearers kind of all in the back back here, we're tempted to think he's mine. He, he's mine. He, he looks like me. Unfortunately, sometimes acts like me. He, he responds to situations like I do. And you say, he's mine. But then you step back and you find even him in this story that God is writing where image bearers make image bearers who make image bearers of the one true image of God. And you, and you realize he's not mine. He's God's. And God has entrusted this little child, this, this kid to me, to raise him in this mindset where we tell the generations to come and generations to come about the works of a God who's revealed himself in creation and who has revealed himself specifically, specially to his covenant people in Christ. And that God has a design for his life. Our children, the children that you serve in Covenant Kids, they bear the marks and the image of God. And he has entrusted them to us to shepherd. The second thing we'll look at as we think about in light, of, you know, as we think about these things in light of uh, the works of God, we're going to talk about a, a generational stewardship that we all carry. Psalm 127 and verse 3 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Children are a gift, okay? Children are a gift. It, it, it's very easy for us in this, this science-rich world to, you know, understand all that happens in biology when a child is being formed after conception, just to just assume that this is a, that these are simply fleshly beings. But one of the great realities of what we believe as Christians is this, that whenever a child is born, furthermore, whenever a child is conceived, that a soul is born. And Psalm 127 verse three is true. Of course, there's human action, but there's God's sovereignty over the womb. And these children that we have, the most important thing about them is not what they look like or the image, the human image that they bear. The most important thing about them is that they have an eternal soul. And so this frames up the stewardship that we have. And I want to talk about our stewardship in really two different ways, okay? Two different ways here. The first is this, the stewardship, this generational stewardship, another way to say it is the, 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 the stewardship that we have for the generations is ours. It's ours. Look in the text with me. In verse 4, we will not hide them from their children. In verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to whom? Our fathers. This is a collective stewardship that we have as a church family a collective responsibility. And the reason it's a collective responsibility um, is this. When, whenever there is sin in the home, when there's sin in the home, the children are the ones who suffer. When there's sin in the home, 
the children are the ones who suffer. And this is why we value church membership so highly. If you've been around Christ Covenant for any time, um, you realize that one of the things that we're going to challenge you to do, if you feel like the Lord is leading you to link arms with this family, is to actually join us in a covenant relationship together. Okay? And you're like, okay, that's interesting language. Why do we need that? Well, what we need in this world are safeguards and protections. We need these things. Um, you, you likely have friends or you've likely read stories of people who, have, who have, were in the faith and have fallen away from the faith. One of the mechanisms of church membership is this. Whenever our friend Car- Will Carlisle is going to be baptized here in a little bit, also leads worship up here. If Will is in public sin or repeated sin or he's disengaged from the life in the life of the church, our corporate responsibility is to go to Will and say, hey, brother, I remember that testimony you read. I remember seeing you be baptized into our church family. I remember all of these things. What are you doing with your life? Engage in the life of this church. And as we do that and do that well, you know who is protected? Will is protected, Jenna is protected, and their future children are protected. Why? Because we want Will to have priorities in his lives and and righteousness that will impact his kids towards godliness. And so church membership, of course, it is for Will and it is for Jenna, but it's also for the generations that the Lord may bless them with in the time ahead. This is why it's important for you to be known in community, to actually not just show up to church on Sunday, but actually know the people of the church. And of course, our church is growing. Uh, But we have subsets within this church that you need to be known in and you need to pursue. This is a good thing for us collectively. It's a responsibility that we bear. And and I know like the 11 o'clock service, you know, a lot of the young adults are in here and you're like, we're not, you're looking around, you're like, we're not parents. What are you talking about, Blake? Why are we, why are we harping on parenting? Uh, I just want to challenge you real quick. Life is all about preparation, okay? We as Christians, all we do in this world, what we should be doing in this world, is preparing to see Jesus face to face. This Christian life that we live is all about preparing for that day, for that moment where, where we with unveiled face will see the glory of God. Face to face, it's all about preparation. In your jobs, prepare. So well, and you will reap a harvest. This is how God has built this world. And so if you're single in the room, or if you're married without children in the room, my challenge to you is to think about these things. Think about God's design for parenting before you're holding a child in a hospital, and then two days later, putting them in a car seat to take them home for the first time. And you're like, oh my goodness. This is my responsibility. Think about these things. Pray about these things ahead of time. But this also extends, I think, to your dating life. To your dating life. Um, God has given us desires to be fruitful and multiply. He's given us desires to be uh, in a covenant relationship with another person. We'll talk more about that here in a little bit. But who you marry affects how you parent. Who you marry affects how you parent, okay? My wife who's here earlier, I promise you this, I am a much better parent because I married well. I did. And, and I don't know that she would say the same thing if she's a better parent, but I hope that she would, you know? Uh, but who you marry affects how you parent. And that affects who you date and what you look for in a date, what you look for in someone that you hope to court to marriage. Like this is, this is important. Fellas, guys, you need to look for a girl to marry that you want your daughters to be like. Okay? You want to look for a girl to marry who you want your daughters to be like. And ladies, you want to look for a guy to marry who you want your sons to be like. That's an important thing. This is good for us. 
And I'm going to read this because I didn't get it totally right in the first service. But ladies, he might look good as gold, but he could be a spiritual dunce. Okay? And you don't, you don't, want, to, you don't want that guy. You don't want that guy. Young man, she might be fine. She might be a smoke show, which is a new term I learned around here. <laughs> smoke show. That means, I think, hot, Bradley. I think, that's what, I think that's what that means. But if she only cares about the outer beauty that fades, you better run. You better run. The, the generations are at stake. We need to be people who pursue the Lord. And pursue God's values in who we marry, in who we are becoming. This stewardship, it's ours. It's ours, and it's a gift from God. Secondly, this stewardship is temporary. This stewardship is temporary. If you were here with us last fall, uh, when we were at the foundry, Jason taught a parenting series. And in that parenting series, he kind of gave us three categories for thinking about the, the life cycle of a parent. Right In the first stage of parenting, which is where I am, I've got a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old. The first stage of parenting is really you're the cop, right? You're, you're just policing the kids. You want them to, you know, obey the rules so that they don't get hurt. There's protection in doing that. And whenever they go outside of the bounds, what do you do? You work to discipline them in a good and a healthy way. The second category is your coach, right? So after your kids move from you know, only going to damage themselves if they're left to themselves, like kind of phase, and they can start making decisions, you become their coach. Of course, you tell them to run the sprints that they need to run in order to be the person that you hope that they become. You give them guidelines, you give them directives, but ultimately you're also recognizing that they have to take a little bit of responsibility and, so to speak, just go execute the play. You're the coach. And then finally you become the consultant, you become the consultant. Whenever the child is understanding themselves in light of adulthood and they're seeking to, to, to grow and leave the home and make decisions for themselves out, outside of your authority, you become a consultant. And reverse parenting is when you, don't, when you get those backwards, right? You don't do the protective measures that you need to early, and so you have to come in later in life and bring those. And you know what? That creates a lot of tension. And so it's important that we think about parenting well and do this well because our stewardship is only temporary. Here's the reality for the Rogers family, okay? I, I've got a five-year-old, and I don't know how. I, 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 it seems like it was just yesterday that the Lord gave us him. Gave us him. He gave him to us. I mean, it, it, it's incredible. If you go to any parent in the room and say, what was parenting like? If their children are outside of the home, they'll probably look at you and say, man, happens just like that. They're here and then they're gone. This is a temporary stewardship that we have as parents. I only have 13 summers left with my oldest son. I only have 13 Christmases left where I know he'll be in my home around my Christmas tree celebrating Christmas and receiving gifts. I only have 13 of those. And many of you, if you've got teenage kids, it's much shorter. The, the, the temporary nature of what it means to be a parent is harsh, seemingly. But it is God's good design. But it's something that we've got to pay attention to. It's something that we've got to be intentional about as a church family. And these 13 summers that I have and these 13 Christmases that I have, that's assuming that I live that long, right? And you're like, man, that's a dark statement. And maybe it is. But the reality is this. If you're close to me and you know me, I was at a funeral last week for my student pastor who died at the age of 51. And that's not old, okay? That's not old at all. He died at the age of 51 and left seven kids, the oldest being 21, the youngest being 10. Last year, so last July, actually, um, my mentor, former boss, guy who shaped my life more than almost anybody else in this world besides my father, died at the age of 38, leaving four kids behind. His children remain. By God's grace, 
the children that we are blessed with in this church family, the children that you are blessed with as parents, the children that you hope for as people who hope to be parents one day, they will carry on what you teach them. And this is the call of our passage. This is a temporary stewardship that we have. And we have to align our priorities as a church and as parents around this call and this responsibility. And, and just for a minute, I just want to talk really practically with you. Um, your priorities in life show up in three, at least three ways, at least three ways, okay? Your time, what you say, and how you live. Your time, what you say, and how you live. Your time. The things you care about as a human being show up on your calendar. You might be terrible at like Google Calendar or iCal or whatever y'all are using these days. I'm a Google Calendar kind of guy. But like you might be terrible at putting things on there. But if you look back over the course of your day, the things you spent your time doing are the things you care about. Okay? Your priorities drive how you spend your time. And when it relates to children, there is a question that has been asked and will continue to be asked. And it's simply this, what do kids need? What kind of time do kids need? Is it, do they need quantity of time? Do they need just quality time? Well, I just want to say this, quality of time is quantity of time for your kids. Quality of time is quantity of time for your kids. And that's not just sitting around on the couch when you get home because you're tired and you're hungry or your, your favorite football team is on or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. You, you, you've got to use the time that God has given you. All of this time that God has given you with great intentionality. It is short. It's short. Use the time that God has given you with great intentionality. Focus on the children that God has given you in your home. Don't be the kind of mom or dad that's only there whenever we're doing something new and exciting, okay? Or when things are going good. And this is rooted in who God is. This is rooted in who God is. Is the God that we serve only there for us in the new and exciting times, in the spiritual highs and exciting moments of our life? No, the, the God that we serve is a God who is there with us in the good times for sure, but he is a God who is there in the bad times and in the boring times and in the mundane times. He's a God that you can go to. He is a God who is engaged. He is a God who desires to know you and for you to know him. He's a God who desires a relationship with you. This is the God that we serve. He is Lord of all times. And one of your responsibilities as a dad and as a mom is to reflect that to your children, that, that the God you serve loves you in Christ no matter what, and he is always there. Let's be parents who organize our lives around the stewardship that we have for our children. The second thing, what, your priorities show up in what you say. Jason preached a great sermon on this last week, and so I'm, I'm not going to rehash this much other than just say, to say your priorities are reflected in the things you talk about in the home. By the way, if, if you find yourself, and my wife and I, we do this, we have to repent of this from time to time, complaining in the home, talking more about the things that we don't have than the things that we do have, that tells something to your children. That's communicating something to your children about your view of what God has given you and blessed you with. And so what you say really matters. But finally, just how you live. Our priorities are reflected in how we live. Saying Christ-centered things without living a Christ-centered life will at best be confusing to your children and at worst will embitter your children towards God. Saying gospel-centered things without living a gospel-centered life will at best confuse your children or at worst embitter them towards God. And one of the things that God has given to the world um, that, as a means of grace through which and by which we can see what covenant relationship looks like is the marriage. 
marriage. Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage, this thing that God has built into the world, has a specific purpose. It's not to fulfill your desires fundamentally. Most fundamentally, it is to reflect the story of Christ in the church to the world. It's missional in that regard. But the ones who have a front row view, a front row seat to your marriage are the kids in your home. And so husbands, love your wives well. Let's not be husbands who love our wives with a strong arm or who are impatient with our wives or are harsh with our wives. Our kids are watching and they're asking, is this how God is? Wives, be gracious and patient with your husbands. Love him, respect him. Your kids will be asking, is this how I should submit to the church? By watching what you do. Your marriage is important. How you live out your Christian life in the home matters a lot. There's another thing within the home in regarding how you live that matters a lot. And it's just what I call your decision patterns. Decision patterns. You know, you as a parent, hopefully, are creating an intentional trajectory for your lives, right? And, and hopefully that's Christ-likeness. Um, hopefully that's Christ-likeness, where you're pursuing Christ and you're making strategic decisions to pursue Christ and lead your family in this journey of knowing Christ and becoming more like him. Well, whenever I was 15 years old, my parents, they sat me down and they told me and my other biological sister, uh, who was a year younger than me, they said, hey, Blake, um, we're going to pursue adoption. And I was like, we ain't pursuing adoption. I was like, I, I, don't, I don't know what you're, what are you getting at, but like, we aren't doing this. Like, no, no, no. The, the Lord has led us to go to the fatherless and to bring an orphan into our home. And I, and, and I was always like a fiscally minded person, fiscally minded person, Okay. And I was like, okay. It was already like inheritance divided by two. And then it was like inheritance divided by three. And I was like, I don't like this math, right? Like, I don't, I don't like how this is working in my, like, really against me, you know, and my, my, my goals for myself. But then you know what? We went. We went as a whole family. Like, we, we went and we toured China. We like, because that's what they required. But it was a good thing to do. And we toured the orphanages. And we got to see these children face to face who didn't have parents to love them. And then as soon as we got back, we brought um, my little sister Kanan home. And as soon as we got back, my mom started filling out paperwork to do it again. And I was like, inheritance divided by two, divided by three. Okay, now divided by four. This is not looking good for me. And then, um, and we brought another child home and they continued to do that until they had adopted seven children. And they still have seven children. One of them is about to, he, he just got a job, which is incredible. He's a, he has a special need that in China, he would have never been anywhere. He, he probably could have worked in the orphanage, but now he's got a good paying job as a 21 year old, which is an incredible, incredible thing. But I think back over my life and I'm like, you know what my parents did? They made gospel-motivated, sacrificial decisions that have utterly shaped how I think about the world. Outside of salvation itself, marrying well, and being a, being a father of three awesome kids, um, that decision that my parents made, that pattern of decisions where they were totally and continuously being hospitable and opening their home and sacrificially giving, because that's a very, very, very expensive process, times seven, taught me that this world is not about you and what you can accumulate. It's important for our kids to know that we are doing that as parents, that we are making decisions that may cost us for the cause of Christ. Your decisions matter. This stewardship, it's a generational one, and it's ours to own. It's so important. 
But finally, let's think about our generational hope that we have. The hope that you and I have is the same hope that all of the generations before us have had and all of the generations that will come after us until Christ returns will have. Our hope is this. It is Christ. Jason, during our teaching meeting, one of the things we do uh, every week is uh, we invite our elders and our staff members um, to come to a teaching meeting where we read through a passage and, and we kind of glean through, you know, what are the nuggets in this passage and where do we think we need to take the church um, at, to, to, to most helpfully understand what the, what the author is saying and how we apply this, so on and so forth. And one of the things that he said was this, and I think this is just spot on and good, your ultimate purpose as a parent is to introduce sinners to a loving and holy God. Your ultimate purpose as a parent is to introduce sinners to a loving and holy God. How do you do that? Well, last week we heard a sermon on what our parents said. And this week we're talking about how our parents lived. You, you have to say these things and, and live out this message in such a way uh, that it compels your, your children to want to be a part of the story that you found yourself to be a part of. This is what happens. And you do this through practicing rhythms of grace and capturing moments of wonder and celebrating milestones of maturity that we looked at last week. But ultimately... Lou reminded us in the teaching meeting, he says, there's no amount of good parenting that will get your child into heaven, and there's no amount of bad parenting that will send them to hell. The generational hope that we have is that God has invited us to know him through Christ. God has invited us to know him through Christ, and he's extended that invitation to everybody in this room. If you do not know God through Christ, the invitation is for you. And he is sovereign in that invitation. And he will complete the work that he has started within you. This is our ultimate purpose as parents. And we see this in the heart of Christ. Now, you might be in the room and you're like, man, I, I, I've really, and this is me, right? I, I have not been as intentional as a parent as I need to be. And so, do you know what I need to do? I need to go to my wife and I need to go to my children and I need to say, hey guys, listen, the Lord has convicted me that I need to be more intentional in these ways with you because life is not about in just conveniences. It's not about comfort. It's not about my schedule. Um, and I need to go and confess that to them and repent. One of the things that we need to do as gospel-believing parents is not just communicate a gospel ethic but also model a gospel life. And the gospel life is a life of repentance and faith. So what does that mean for you? Uh, it means, husband, whenever you get short with your wife in front of your kids and your kids see it, you should go to them and her first and then to them and say, listen, children, I am a sinner. And, and my only hope is that Christ completed the life and perfectly lived the life that I should have lived, and he died for my sin. But I need to confess to you that what I did is wrong and sinful, and Christ has covered it. We as parents must model repentance for our children. We see something special, I think, in the, in the very heart of Christ in Mark 10, verses 13 and 14, which we have on the screens. This is, this is an account of Jesus, and Jesus, man, did he have demands on his time. And, and did he have expectations that people had for him? But in this passage, we see this. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. To the children. What is he getting at here? Just like my friend John Powell who died, and just like my former student pastor and good friend Daryl Summy has died, and their children have lived on, so it will be, hopefully, that after I am dead and gone, my children will live on. And when they are dead and gone, that their children will live on. The, the hope of the kingdom of God is that it continues. 
from one generation to the next. And so when the disciples are confronting Jesus about investing in these little children, he says, no, 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 you don't get it. The generations are at stake. We need children to see me face to face so that they can be a part of what God deserves, a world that is made for him and that generationally worships him. When we are gone, our children will live on. Earlier, and I'm, I'm not sure that they'll do it again, but earlier we had around you know, 50 or 60 kids watching a baptism. And it was awesome. It's great to see all those little kids come in and see face-to-face one of the gifts that God has given us, one of the physical expressions of what God does for us in baptism. To hear a testimony and to see someone go under the water and to be raised to newness of life. This is, this is something that we as a church want for our children. And I'm not sure that they'll come in because many of them were in, they've been in there for like three hours because their parents were at the parent brunch. So I'm not what the status, sure what the status is back there. It could just be total chaos at this point. But let's, let's be a church family that prays for them, that, that loves on them, that takes time out of our week to prioritize them and serve them, the generations are at stake. And these kids, they're asking big questions. I was over at a church member's house not long ago, and I had my kids over there, and he had his kids, obviously, at his house, and we were playing. And um, before we left to go home with my kids, which getting three kids in the car, good grief, I always try to delay it because it's just like... So much, but we were kind of like delayed a little bit doing this, and 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 his son came up to me, and uh, he was very nervous, and he kind of like stepped up to me really closely, and he kind of put his head down, and he said, uh, "Pastor Jason," and I said, uh, "Yes," because I didn't correct him, and uh, and all pastors here are named Jason, and uh, I was like, "Yeah." He says, what happens when a child dies? This is a five-year-old going to a pastor. His, his parents are obviously have him in an environment where he's asking real questions of life. And I was able just in a, just a brief answer to point him to the hope that we have in our Lord. The kids, the generations, They're our responsibility. Let's steward it really well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the generations that you place among us, Uh, the gift of these kids. And God, um, as they uh, are learning uh, in the back and as they're in the homes uh, of the parents that we have in this room, God, I just pray that you would do a work among them and that they would come to know the works of God, that they wouldn't be stubborn and turn their hearts to you, but their spirits would be soft to your moving, to your leading. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.